Hello and welcome to the Cat Day Chronicles podcast. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from pet owners about their projects, businesses and ventures. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, founder of Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with pet owners to chat about their individual journeys and of course, their beloved pets. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Cat Mass Day Chronicles podcast. This week I'm joined by Britt Collins, who I first met at one of her amazing events, Catfest. I've been a huge fan of Britt and all of the work that she does for animals since we met. I'm so excited to have her on my show. I could have written a long introduction, but I would rather listen to Britt speak about all of the amazing work she does. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Britt. I briefly introduced you already, but if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, Well, I'm a journalist, um, an animal rights activist, uh, and I've been rescuing animals pretty much my whole life. Wherever I live, the strays seem to find me. So, um, yeah, I I always kind of, I I mean, I became a journalist because for me, it was my passport to the wild, you know, so Mm -hmm. I go to Namibia and Kenya and to volunteer at sanctuaries around the world. And um, that was always kind of my agenda. Yeah. Um, and and of course, when I'm home in London, I'm always rescuing strays. I just kind of do it naturally. They either find me in the garden or I, I help whoever I can. So um, I guess one of my diseases is I'm an animal feeder. I, and nothing makes me happier than seeing animals happy and joyful. It's so rewarding, isn't it? It's just oh. like you can really sense the the gratitude as well. Uh, for me, every time I save an animal from a from a horrible condition or, or situation, and I see them glossy and happy, it's like winning the lottery every oh. time. I just it's, it's like a drug addiction, really. It is. It is, but a good, a very good addiction to have. I want to say. <laughs> but it's very difficult to know where to start, as I could probably speak to you for hours about everything that you've been doing with animals because you've been doing it for such a long time. But when did your love and passion for animals start? Did it start when you were a child? Um, when when did you start eating I, rescuing? I always. I mean, I always. I mean, I had. When I was when I was born, I, there were five cats, and they would sort of lie in the crib with me. Um, I mean, I absolutely loved animals. Um, and when my mother left, she took the five cats, and uh, my father and I got um, five more. And then I somehow got up to thirteen. Oh, uh, wow. We had two dogs. I was rescuing wildlife, squirrels, um, birds. I, I just I, I think it's probably in my DNA, and, and especially cats. The only thing I don't like about having cats is that you have to buy them meat and fish. And mm-hmm. I, I've been a vegetarian since I was a, a child. Well, I'm, I'm actually a vegan, but okay. Um, so that, that's the sort of terrible drawback about having. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're obligate carnivores. That's the one thing. Um, on the very first cat fest that we had, I had a young vet uh, who was one of the speakers from New York, and he said one of the problems that he found is a lot of sort of like, especially millennials, um, will try to turn their cat vegan. Yeah. 
ease a lot of the health issues that they have with bone degeneration and they'll go blind. And so, you know, um, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're obligate carnivores. There's really kind of no way around it, but um, I've been speaking to our first sponsor of Catfest, Elmo uh, Nature. Elmo Nature is an Italian food company with high grade. Uh, it's actually human grade cat food. Yeah. Um, the guy who started it started it because, well, he loved animals and he d- didn't like any of the pet food that was available. So he started his own and it became really successful. And now they've rebranded into um, into a foundation. So 100 percent of the profits go to European shelters, which is amazing. Anyway, back to the, the, the reason I'm bringing up Elma Nature is because I've been speaking to them about um, of clean meat cat food because they're they're kind of of the of this they 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 do a lot of wildlife projects too and okay and if this, yeah. is, a way, if this is a way to feed cats meat that doesn't come from slaughtered animals um there's uh i've actually written quite a lot about it uh, the clean meat industry lab grown meat and it's already on sale in singapore and uh parts of america um and so they were saying they're going to sort of have clean meat pet food as soon as it's sort of possible. So, so I'm looking forward to that, <laughs> but, 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 but it, what will be amazing eventually is when they bring the clean meat pet food so that no animals yeah. will have been sort of killed or tortured. So, which I can't wait really. Exactly. That's the downside of having cats, having to buy the meat. Yeah. yeah. That's really good news. Um, yeah. We'll definitely um, stay posted about that. Cause I think a lot of people would, be interested in well i mean my vegan and vegetarian friends they're like the same they just that's the that's the drawback of having cats you have to sort of provide them sort of dead animals you know there's like no way around it you know um yeah uh yes i've, I've rescued and loved animals my entire life i mean everything i do uh, even when i had a music magazine straight out of university in the 90s um we always we, I mean, it was a music magazine, but somehow we'd always feature something about animals. We'd have the bands talking about it um, because I guess in the music industry, there's a lot of vegans and vegetarians. It's yeah. just kind of musicians, especially are, I suppose in a way they're a lot like cats. They're like pure emotion, really. They're emotional beings. Um, yeah. So we always managed to sort of sneak in something about animals. Uh, even when I interviewed Paul McCartney um, a few years ago, we talked about his animal rights campaigning and, um, somehow I managed to always <laughs> get it in whatever I'm doing that's amazing and and obviously you know when you're passionate about something that's all you want to do and what better way than to to speak to amazing people like Paul McCartney that's that's amazing yeah. um yeah kind of my hero Paul McCartney Beatles and David Bowie and wow absolutely love them I mean I I think I when Bowie died, I just, I think it's the first time I cried when a celebrity died, really. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's not true. Uh, when John Lennon died when I was a, a kid. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that, that was quite horrendous. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you you talk about rescuing cats and you do that quite a lot. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about any of the cat rescue missions that you've done. I know you, you help other animals as well, um, but it would be interesting to know a little bit more about some of the cat rescues that you... you well, so somehow, I mean, over the years, there was one point where I was living in a house with uh, three mates and we had 15 cats. Eight of them were mine. Um, three of them were Jane's. Three of them were Hazel's. And then we had this sort of football-loving bloke, Cod Stewart, who was still a really great friend. 
Um, and we always had a couple of foster cats. So we had 16, 17, 18 cats. Wow. I mean, there was always a stray that showed up in the garden. Of course, we took them in. I, I don't have the neutered, uh, deal with any health issues and find them really get great homes. Yeah. But one of the one of the ones that really sticks out is when I lived in Hackney near London Fields, there was this um I was coming back home from brunch with my then boyfriend and we'd always see these cats on the rooftop. Mm. And, uh, I thought that's really strange. They're always up in the roof. And so I knocked on the door. Um, they were above this uh, Vietnamese restaurant mm. and they said, Oh, they're, they're strays. They live up there. So the family who lived above the restaurant would give them food and rice and just, just enough to kind of keep them there. And, yeah. uh, so I got a cat trap from the RSPCA and we trapped them. Um, there, there was a daddy cat and four kittens. And one of them had three legs. The vet seemed to think that it was a birth defect. He was born that way. Um, and that took over four or five weeks. <laughs> we, um, the, the, they would call me every time they caught one in a trap. I showed them how to use it. And I would sort of walk over and collect them. And, and, and we managed to home... Um, we managed to home them in pairs and daddy cat on his own. Um, but that, that was one. And then when I was in Cuba on holiday, um, I went with a friend and we spent the entire time feeding strays, the yeah. cats, dogs in the street. And we walked around with these backpacks full of cat food and yeah. dog food and, <laughs> and, you know, bread and carrots for the horses. The horses were really skinny. It was really depressing. And, um, and then we were in Chinatown and I saw this tiny thing in the doorway. First I thought it was a rat and I went up close to her and saw that it was a kitten. Mm. And I noticed, um, I, I mean, she was, I had nothing by that point, but a bit of bread left. So I gave it to her. She almost bit my finger up. She was so great. Oh, wow. We looked around to see if it was a mother or a family and she was on her own. She was, I thought she was five or six weeks, but um, in developing world countries, they tend to be smaller. She was by eight weeks old. I scooped her up. I put her in the bag, took her to the hotel where we had tons of food. Then I noticed she wasn't using her back leg. She had a broken leg. And so she stuffed herself with tuna. And then I stuffed her back in my bag and she put up a huge fight. And and then we hitchhiked to the vet because we just couldn't get a cab. Um, I just stuck my finger out and this couple just swerved to run across the road to collect us, took us to the vet. And the vet there was amazing. He actually... He set her leg in place and put the cast with, he, he did it as he was talking to us. It was incredible. He did it like wow. in five or six minutes and he had such limited resources. And uh, I mean, I, I was so impressed with him and I paid him in advance um, for her neutering because I, I planned to find her a home or if I couldn't, I would just take her back um, <laughs> somehow. I was planning to take her I stayed up all night after we rescued her trying to figure out how am I going to sort of get this cat out of the country if I can't find a home for her because, um, and so, I mean, everybody, we thought we were being clever. We snuck this cat into our hotel, but everybody in the hotel knew the cleaning ladies, they all talked about us, you know? (laughs) And, um, and I asked the woman about the, at the information desk when I brought her where the nearest vet was. And she asked me about the kitten and I said, I'm looking for a home for her. Um, she said, well, ask my boyfriend. And she said, well, we'd like her. Uh, can we take her tomorrow? And I said, well, no, you can take her in 10 days um, just before I leave. I'll, I'll do a home check and take her to your house, you know. So she found a home in Havana, which was great. And someone had a nice big flat with a balcony and everything so she could sunbathe. 
Um, but I just kept thinking about this vet. So I went to a, a shopping mall, bought tons of, um, I bought antibiotics, um, painkillers, really basic oh, things. Yeah. And I, I, I brought him like 300 pounds worth of meds. And, you know, he, he had tears in his eyes. It was, wow. I mean, he made me cry. And then on the way to the airport, like uh, about a week or so later, um, I took, we, we popped by to give him all the money that we'd left. I had about 60 quid and Hazel had about 30 or 40 quid. Yeah. And, and he would not take it. And I said, okay, I'm going to leave it in the ground. <laughs> so you have to take it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he's the type, if you gave him a chance to leave Cuba, he wouldn't because there's like so much. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's just horrific there with the strays. Um, and you can tell that he worked six, seven days a week. He even had an operating theater at his house, you know. My goodness. So he was working all the time. But, you know, so we gave him at 100 quid, which, you know, the, the, they had salaries of about $20, $30 a month. So it went a long way. I mean, that's, that's what they made. You know? yeah. This was about um, 10, 11 years ago. But, yeah, so that was, that was two of the rescues um, that sort of always stand out in my mind. I mean, there were just so many. I still remember all their names <laughs> in every part of London they lived. Um, in Islington, um, in Hackney, I, I was just constantly rescuing. I can't help myself. But um, and then when I when I moved to LA, um, we there were two strays that I rescued. I had to do a transatlantic move with five cats, wow, and and find a home for two that were squatting with me. So <laughs> I just but one of my friends uh, took Freddie. He still lives in Ireland. And the other one, Mr. Ripley, I homed him with a journalist colleague. And I wrote her about a month or two after I was in L.A., asked how he was doing. And she said, well, you know, I see less and less of him. I, he, I don't think he likes me and my three cats. And he, he moved down the road to someone else's house. You know, I mean, they're just so funny. You know, she, she had an even bigger flat than me. Yeah. She only had three cats. And when he moved in, I had seven cats. Two of the old girls died before I moved to L.A. But he still preferred, he, he chose me. And of course, I couldn't take him because I was leaving the country. Mm. And, um, but yeah, he, he moved with a neighbor. She was so heartbroken because she just fell in love with him. But he was such a character. But yeah, you always remember them. I mean, I, I must have rescued a few hundred, but it felt like thousands at times. You know, it's just, yeah. it was just endless. I can imagine, especially if it's continuous, like you're saying, and, and you've been to yeah. so many countries as well. Um, you know, the, 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 the trouble is when you travel, especially when you go to developing world countries, yeah. you see the straits. When I went to Amman and Jordan, I just, I mean, it was just devastating. You'd see kittens and puppies in the road on their own. And I mean, they just don't care. I, I, the, they, they treat animals so badly in the Middle East. It's just <laughs> horrific. Um, and, you know, all you can do when you're there is feed them and if they're injured take them to the vet and that's it you know I've, I've literally seen dead kittens um and puppies in the street and you could see they've had a horrible sort of death and um yeah so that's the sort of like terrible part about traveling I absolutely dread uh I remember uh going to Thailand with my um my now ex-husband and he just got so sick of like going out and feeding the cats every night. He said, can we just go out and have a holiday? Do we just have to feed, you know, cats and dogs? Every night? <laughs> I started crying in the middle of Bangkok and then he felt bad. He quietly went, he quietly went and bought, you know, um, cat and dog meat. And, and, and then we spent the evening, you know, feeding the cats and dogs and then poke yeah. up. 
it's just I just can't help myself um I'm the same literally I'm the same anywhere I go we're always buying food and like I remember this time in Egypt that I went and I was feeding cats there was no like where to buy cat food actual cat food so I had to buy like tins of tuna or something else that I knew like a cat could eat and then when the locals saw me feeding them they were so confused they were like what are you doing like why are you feeding them and they just didn't understand but the cats were so malnourished it was just they were, and they're so so grateful and it's heartbreaking but yeah Arab countries are just I mean, I remember the woman who runs the Water to Heart charity. She was asked because uh, she rescues a lot of animals, brings them to the UK and Europe, and finds them homes and sets up shelters and does a lot of neutering. And um, she said two of the worst places in the world were Puerto Rico and um, the Middle East and Lebanon in particular. Um, they were using the animals as target practice. Oh. I mean, it's just a horror show. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm not mad about going to the Middle East. Um, but, you know, um, I remember in Africa going to some of the homesteads with um, the Maasai and, you know, they have very little food and they're very poor. But, yeah, if they have cats and dogs, they just share everything, you know. Wow. Um, it's, you know, I, I mean, I, I love Africa. Um, yeah. For that reason, it's just a, a different world. But, yeah, the Middle East just, <laughs> I just, I, mentally, I just can't cope with it. Wow, absolutely. However, I do know people who are doing great work in Abu Dhabi and Dubai at the moment for, for sure. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, in fact, the well, you know that um, our catfish charity, um, Anne Heslop's charity, Erham, um, in fact, a third of the catfish kittens uh, in 2019 came yeah. from Morocco. Yes, I remember. Yeah, they're just they're thrown in the trash. Um yeah. It's it's kind of like part of the culture. Uh, I mean, a lot of them are just so poor uh, or they don't realize that they can sort of uh, neuter the animals. And if they can, they can't afford it. So, I mean, Anne, Anne neuters people's pets for free. Just to sort of stop the constant sort of, uh, just the sort of puppies and kids that are just thrown in the skip. Yeah. I mean, and then they go blind, they get the flu. And it's you've seen the videos and the pictures and it's just... Mm-hmm. It's horrendous. Um, we were supposed to go over there um, this year, but it's been so hard because Morocco's on the red list. And mm. uh, when I come back from LA, I'm hoping to help and bring a few back. Um, there's someone who's actually going to take three of them: uh, a blind, a blind one, a one-eyed one, pirate, um, and one with wonky legs. You know, she wants oh, the hard luck cases that will yeah. have a hard running home so yeah. so we're bringing those three and a couple of others because you're only allowed to bring five at a time oh right um and it's 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 complicated with the paperwork it's quite expensive because it's a, a high rabies country oh, okay. um so we have to go through france and yeah and there's a lot of paperwork i mean the bigger kittens that we had at cat fest there were the moroccan ones because with the rabies vaccines you have to wait two or three months so by the time we bring them over they're about six seven months so yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I do know, you know, people are doing amazing work in Abu Dhabi. Uh, one of the charities we hope to work with as well, um, again, she brings them to the Middle East where the situation is just shocking. Yeah. Uh, so th- they're called the Mad Hatter um, okay. Sanctuary. They're, they're up in Leeds. But she, well, I'm not going to tell you how she brings them in. But, <laughs> uh, but she, she, she's, she's, got, she's got friends, you know, um, so it makes life easier. But 
some of the things like places like Qatar, for example, which is quite a rich, you know, Middle Eastern yeah. country with the oil money. Um, and a lot of people who go there for work, um, contractors, they will rescue animals off the street or they'll buy them from breeders. And then when they leave to go back to Europe or America or wherever, they would just dump them on the street. Mm. So a lot of the animals that she rescues are pedigrees. You know, can you imagine? They actually buy these animals, then they go home and they just dump them to fend for themselves when they were never even street clad. So it's even exactly. harder. And they're probably petrified because then they're, 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 they're petrified. They don't understand how to navigate traffic. They don't understand how to live uh, as a stray. Yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, the, the, the 50 degree heat. You know, yeah. it's, the, 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 it's just, yeah. So she brings a lot of uh, those cats over. Okay. Is there any way we can, as listeners, like support um, people who are doing this kind of work or, or what can we do? Well, I mean, they're always, you could follow them on an Instagram. Um, they're always, always looking for funding. And, and I mean, this is how she does it. Um, and yeah. also when you adopt a cat from her, it's, it's, it's expensive. It's four or 500 quid. Um, yeah. You know, we had to sort of, uh, I mean, that's what Anne charges for the Moroccan cats, simply because that's how much it costs to bring them over. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, with all the paperwork, the flight, um, all the vaccines, yeah. uh, it, it's it's between four to 600 quid a cat. So, so of course, uh, charities like Anne's and uh, the Mad um, Hatter's um, Sanctuary, they they rely on people adopting them to, to pay for the cost. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, they rely on donations. Yeah, because it is it is so expensive per cat. Yeah, but it's worth it because you know those cats again would be so grateful. And I look after quite a lot of rescue cats at Chatty Cats Care that have come from Africa or the Middle East, and um, they they are so happy in their homes now. It's it's just such a great feeling for, for you know whatever whatever little you give them, they are so grateful yeah. when they come from those dreadful situations, but. Yeah. But um, yeah, so a lot of these cats are pedigree. But you know, for people who want a pedigree, you don't have to buy them. You can get them from any sanctuary, any type of cat you want. British Blue, Mancoon. I mean, I've had uh, I've had three Mancoons. I've had a British Blue. I have a Russian Blue. I mean, they're all rescues. Wow. You know, I, I don't I don't look for those particular yeah animals, just whoever comes up. I mean, of course, I'd love some Mancoons. They're amazing, but I would only get them as rescues. Yeah. Um, so any type of animal you want, or the same goes for dogs. If yeah. you want a particular breed, you can get them because they get dumped as well. You know, people get them oh. and and then dump them when when it doesn't suit their lifestyle, when their hearts grow cold or, or whatever. But yeah, that was one of my fears. Like um, you know, now that the lockdown's easing, that you know people are kind of getting pets and now they're kind of just thinking about you know what are they going to do now and 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 some pets are going to get dumped unfortunately they are being dumped uh, in fact a lot of the sanctuaries are really struggling uh both here in america people got these dogs and cats that because they were lonely or yeah because their lives were sort of shrunken in the pandemic and and then they dumped them um and it's it's actually worse than adopting in the first place yeah because these these um, shelters are all struggling now. Yeah, I can imagine. So we definitely need to be giving more and and helping more people. I think you know I've been looking for small charities to to support as well, especially you know 
um, during the Christmas time when hopefully it gets busier. So I really am interested to know about more um, charities or, or people, even um, individuals. who. who it's do- really important to support the, the small charities and the cat ladies who go out and feed them. I mean, there's just so many on sort of Instagram um, that just go out night after night feeding strays in New York and New Jersey and London and you know that's sort of all they do and and they raise and they have an Amazon wish list for cat food and th- those are the people who really need the money um you know of course uh Battersea and uh, RSBC and, and cat protection they all do great and amazing work but it's the tiny charity because these people usually feed them out of their own pockets okay, and exactly. you know and the, sometimes they're older ladies are pensioners i mean they could barely feed themselves and they're feeding all these cats so they're the ones who need help most of all and and what Anne is doing in morocco i mean she does this off of her own back and um you know once in a while she has a GoFundMe, but and we support her when we have the festival but it's it's, it's quite hard you know um i mean she she must have uh, neutered a few thousand cats and setting wow. up that town on her own and with a little support that she gets, you know, so, so it's really, really important to support the tiny charities and the individuals. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Actually. I think it's good for, for people to know. Um, but let's talk a little bit about cat fest because, you know, prior to lockdown, I did purchase a store. I think it might have been in the 2019 one. Um, so where did the idea for Catfest come from? Um, and for the listeners who may not know about Catfest, you know, tell us what it's about. Well, it's quite funny. I mean, when I was a music journalist in the 90s, I started off uh, writing rap music. And I always had musician boyfriends. And I, I had this particular boyfriend, Ben, who was also a vegan and a mad animal lover. And we used to fantasize about, wouldn't it be cool to have a, a rock festival with you know, fab guitar bands and have rescue animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's something, you know, I talked about like in the nineties and it was always in the back of my head. And, uh, and then when I was living in LA, CatCon started and I thought, shit, I always, uh, I, I always wanted a festival. I thought, right. When I go back to London, when I move back, I'm going to start <laughs> the festival. And, and at that point I wrote uh, the book Strays. Yes. Uh, and I thought I'm going to start this festival and 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 so i did <laughs> uh basically it's it's for cat lovers and animal lovers so you have uh, rescue cats and kittens we have an adoption lounge we have a uh, really brilliant vegan food because yeah. I, I do have an agenda and i'm trying to uh make people aware of animal suffering to sort of to not eat meat or dairy um yeah. and uh so you know we've really great vegan food we have speakers from all over the world um talking about everything from uh cat rescue to um last year not, i'm so confused with the pandemic the year before I know. 2019 um we had uh, a wildlife photographer who goes undercover and um she shot stuff from everywhere in china and africa and uh you know we, we have a really interesting mix of people yeah. we had Tony uh, Vernelli, who who now works on. Sorry, the, there's a cat scratching in the background. <laughs> We're used to the cat noises. It's fine. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so we just have a, a huge variety of speakers. We also had the guy who rescued Christian the lion um, in the 60s, early 70s, took him back to Africa. 
Uh, yeah, so we have a really uh, fantastic variety of speakers. We had an art show with uh, international artists from LA, New York, Lisbon, uh, London, everywhere. Um, yeah, so it's just it's it's a, a cat appreciation festival. So and yeah. you have like music, and you could buy things for yourself and your cat. And um, we even had um, a cat crafts room, so you can make cat ears and catnip toys <laughs> yes so yeah all th- it's all things cats but on a sort of boutique level um yeah where some of the american festivals are quite huge we don't really want to go over like i mean we try to sort of stay at two or three thousand um but this past we were last year we were supposed to do a whole weekend instead of a day and of course the pandemic sort of killed that mm. but we hope to return back to beckenham place mansion Okay. Um, on July 16th. So we'll go back to one day. I, I guess we have to kind of ease back to one day. Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully there won't be other restrictions. Um, in fact, I went to a festival this year and they did the um, lateral flow tests. And it, it's okay, just, yes, exactly. It's a pain, really. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping we won't have that by next summer. With Catfest, um, most of it, it is, it's. It's a Beckenham Place Mansion, which is this lovely Georgian mansion in the middle of a South London park. And And we we rent three of the grand ballrooms um, in the mansion, but most of it's outside. And then we have the cheap or the merchandising. So I think, and it's it's not a massive festival. It's a boutique festival. So I I don't think, it's not like, you know, some of the music festivals, like Reading Festival, just tens and thousands of people. And uh, and then even with um, with the three rooms that are inside, with the adoption line, we limit the amount of people going inside. You have to sort of yeah. queue up that simply because you don't want to overwhelm the cats. Yes, exactly. So people go in 15, 20 minutes at a time to see the kittens that are available, pet them, play with them. I mean, you can see that on our website, which is catfestlondon.com. Um, you can see what the festival looks like. Um, and so, yeah, and then you, if there's a cat that you're interested in, you just sort of fill in a form and, and then we sort of try to f- choose the best person for that particular cat. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the last cat fest, we homed a lot of them in pairs, which is really lovely. Oh, wow. And we even um, had a blind cat, uh, Beauty, and his partner, Shadow, from Morocco. He was so chilled. He was, he basically just assessed the ballroom, walked around, figured <laughs> where everything was, and then just sat in the window um, on one of the sort of cat trees in the sun Aww. and just let everyone pet him. He was just so cool. That's cute. Yeah. But he, he actually, he and Shadow, uh, my friends actually took him. Oh, brilliant. Because he had to have a special home and Anne wanted, Anne wanted him to stay in London. Yeah. She wanted to access to them because she had him for three years he was three years old and shadow was two and she wanted to see them so yeah you do especially when you have them that long and she found them in a riad um she found beauty and his brother uh, when they were five six weeks old and they had the no they were about seven eight weeks old and they had the fluey eyes and of course they both were virtually blind when she found them and beast really was a beast so um (laughs) After she neutered them, he just ran off. Um, he okay. just, you know, there were feral kittens. Mm. But Beauty was really tender and he became friendly, but his brother just wasn't having it. it just, yeah. But, you know, he managed to 
survive somehow. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I had a great time at Cat First. I, I thought it was great because it's the first time that I've been somewhere where I could meet other cat lovers. But that's the idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I thought that was really cool. I mean, uh, someone asked me the other day, um, what's the difference between cat people and dog people? I mean, I love all animals, cats and dogs. You know, uh, I mean, loving one doesn't preclude the other. You know, I don't have dogs because, I mean, before the pandemic, I used to travel a lot and dogs require a lot. And, you know, as a kid, but 20 cats is easier than a dog because they're really demanding. But uh, so I said the difference between cat people and dog people dog people might love their dogs but with cat people it's it's it goes a bit sort of further it's much more it's reverential it's an obsession I mean it is all the cat people I know they're absolutely obsessed with their cats and I think and and also cat people are more introspective so and cats are the perfect styling companions a lot of sort of artists writers musicians um love cats because they're the perfect silent companions but and they're just pure emotion cats yeah, I mean, this is why I started this podcast as well, because I've had amazing conversations with cat people from all walks of life, different industries, from artists, chefs, um, athletes, you name it. And and they're all kind of cat people. And it's just been really interesting to hear about their backgrounds, but also their experience and love for cats. I mean, I can't, you know, I I, I wish I could sort of have a sanctuary. I will at some point. Um, yeah. Um, I, 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 there's one thing I just cannot live without is cats. I mean, for me, they're like oxygen. I have to have cats. Um, even when, if I was going, um, I remember going to New York a lot, um, because I used to be a music journalist. So the record companies would send you to New York, LA to interview a band for two or three days. And I always chose hotels, like little boutique places. Um, there's a place in Harlem I used to go to all the time. Um, it was called the Harlem Flop House. And this gallery owner basically owned one of those brownstones, lived downstairs, and he rented the four bedrooms upstairs. And and uh, and he had three cats. And I went there, I realized, because because I missed my own cats when mm-hmm. I sort of traveled. So I, I went there for the cats. <laughs> Just, so I could sort of have the cats sleeping with me, you know, when I was away. But... I always went to, and, and at the time, especially earlier on, um, I mean, Harlem, obviously it's become more gentrified, but it's quite dodgy. Yeah. There was one summer when I was staying there and um, they had the police lines all over the brownstone. Wow. and was murdered and I just thought, oh <laughs> but I just, I don't care either. I'm going there, you know, he has cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the priority. I don't care about what's going on around. <laughs> no, it's true because even now I find myself like if I'm going somewhere researching to see if there's like any cat cafes nearby, because I will go just to be with cats. My boyfriend's like, haven't you had enough of cats? We work with cats all the time. You have a cat sitting company, but like I can never get enough of them because like, like you said, they're like oxygen. Like I will never bore of them and I will never have enough. No, it's, it's quite funny. And the other thing I used to do whenever I went to New York, I mean, especially in the nineties used to be really frequently in those days. I'd go to this pet shop in uh, the West Village and and just to play with uh, cats and dogs. And, you know, the people sort of knew me every time I went there. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I wasn't going to buy anything, but, <laughs> you know, I gave them attention. I just loved them. It yeah. just made, made me happy. Um, 
I'd buy them treats and stuff. And in fact, I went to the new forest simply that I can feed the the cows and the donkeys and the horses. Yeah. I just, I'd buy sort of huge shopping bags uh, full of carrots and apples and oat cakes and just so I could feed animals. Um, oh. It's like that Blur song. Uh, it gives me an enormous sense of well-being. I mean, it just makes me happy feeding animals, you know. Um, it's an absolute addiction. It is. <laughs> it's a good addiction, though. But yeah, tell us about your book called Stray, um, Stray, sorry. You said that that obviously inspired, well, part well, of the inspiration behind Catfest. Well, I moved to, uh, my ex-husband's a filmmaker, so he wanted to move to LA and we dragged all our cats there from London. He still lives there, loves LA. Okay. Um, and uh, I was writing a story for The Guardian and I was doing some research and this headline caught my eye, homeless man travels 3,600 miles to take Cat back home. And of course, I stopped what I was doing to read the story. It was such an extraordinary story. I thought, wow, I have to find this man. I have to write a book. Yeah. And, and, and so I actually got in touch with his foster father in Montana. He was on his way back home to return the cat to Portland. I mean, they traveled across four states over 4,000 miles. They lived um, on the beach under a tree in Ventura, California, they got lost in the desert. They um, they got picked up by truckers, cowboys, right. uh, evangelists. I mean, it was just such a crazy story. Um, in fact, they got uh, ambushed by coyotes, and he, he you know he was he was depressed. He was drunk, and he managed to protect this cat in the wilderness on the streets. Um, and I, I was so touched by uh, he told the story was syndicated um, all across America. The vet. Um, called one of the newspapers in Helena, Montana, because the cat was microchipped. That's how Michael found out she had a home. Okay. Um, and he thought it was an important story to share with people to show the importance of microchipping in case you lose your cat. You know, you can, I mean, you'll never get it back otherwise, you know, or a dog in that, for that matter. Yeah. And I thought, and it got syndicated in newspapers across America. And I thought, I have to find this man. But what really touched me about it is how much he cared for this cat and how much he loved her. And, and he said something like, the cat was a rainbow in an otherwise dark world. You know, that was just, that really touched me. I thought, I have to find him. I have to write this story. Yes. Um, exactly. and, and, but the, the cat's owner, Ron, um, I mean, when they were in Portland for three months in the street, they were only about eight, nine blocks away. And the cat's owner was going insane um, looking mm-hmm. for her. You know, he'd he'd have he'd cry. Um, he oh, wow. cat whispers. Um, yeah. He went to psychics. I mean, he never stopped looking for her. And the brother, she had a brother who was left behind. He waited for her on a porch every night for ten months. Oh my god! Um, yeah. So it's just such a. There was so much. It, the story had everything: love, loss, tenderness, a real sense of magic. You know, so. It sounds, it, honestly, listening to it, I can understand why you would make, you know, why you would adapt that into a book because it honestly feels like, you know, one of those books that you pick up and you can imagine everything while you're reading it. It's all, it's almost like a, a movie, but in your mind, like you can picture everything that's happening. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I actually saw the film rights to it before I even had the publishing deal. Right. Um, but they held on to it for five years and they never kind of did anything with it because they bought up a lot of other stories. 
then I had a producer approach me, wanted to make a movie of it, but then he kind of uh, fell by the wayside. Then Johnny Depp's production company was interested, but then he was marred with his own sort of troubles and nothing came of that. So, you know, it will eventually become a movie. Um, yes. Hopefully. Because I watched, it, yeah, I watched the trailer um, and it was a pretty emotional short film, to be honest. I was really gripped. Um, and that's on YouTube, isn't it? It's on YouTube. It's on my yeah. website, BrickCollins.net. Yeah. Brit but uh, yeah, um, we, we shot that trailer in a weekend. Um, oh. and, and, and then the book was sold within 24 hours. Um, my agent sent it to uh, Simon Schuster and Random House, and they both wanted it. Um, okay. It was like amazing, uh, literally 24 hours. Uh, but the book is really vivid. And I went to all the places Michael went. Um, I mean, everywhere. Everywhere. So I can write about it. In fact, I spent um, days at a time sitting in the parks with him and his mates um, on park benches uh, yeah. uh, everywhere. I mean, there was a point where I was going to hitchhike with them, um, but my my ex husband thought that was crazy. That's probably not yeah, like hitchhiking <laughs> because you know a lot of people carry guns in America, especially yeah. in the Northwest. It's such a crazy part of America. Oh, I can uh, imagine. Yeah so, <laughs> yeah, so I didn't, but I went everywhere. I went to the place where they um, lived on the beach, and um, I went to Michael's um, foster father's home in Montana, met his friends. Um, Ron took me to Sulby Island, uh, where he used to go to as a kid in the 70s uh, to visit his grandfather. Yeah. And he took Mata, um, who was also who Michael called Tabor, and her brother, and we took the cats and had a picnic, the four of us, on, on, on this little island um, just outside of Portland called Solvey Island. And when we were there, this little black kitten came out of the woods. She, sm she, she smelled the other cat. She smelled all the cat food. And she was so, bon she was so bony. She, her paws looked like duck feet. You know, they were just massive. And... Um, and she ate like four or five little tins of cat food. She was starving and she just walked straight into the cat carrier. And she just, I, I mean, Ron went up and down the beach. He asked about 50 people and um, someone told him they saw an old man just striking her, but nobody thought to save her. Yeah. Um, somebody dumped her there to die. And it's, it's, it's a wonder that she survived uh, because when Ron took her to the vet, Ron was um, the cat's original owner who never stopped looking for Tabor. For yeah. Mata, her, her, her real name was Mata Hari. Okay. Yeah. And um, he, he asked everybody. And uh, when he took her to the vet, the vet thought that she hadn't eaten in about 10 days and she was really dehydrated. But the fact that she survived at four or five months uh, in a place where there were coyotes, there were birds of prey, um, is, is quite miraculous. Yes. Anyway. Um, Ron, Ron still has her. She's uh, she's now, um, let's see, we rescued her in 2015, so she would be six years old now. And Mada would be, um, she just celebrated her 12th birthday, so last That's month. amazing. Yeah. What an amazing story. Wow. <laughs> I mean, Ron, Ron is a cat man. Uh, he was always rescuing strays. He found Mada and her brother and her um, litter mates um in fact the neighbor found him underneath their porch somebody dumped the litter oh. and and ron sort of bottle fed them since they were like before they opened their eyes when they were a couple of weeks old 
mm-hmm. and of course he chose the two that he wanted and then he homed the other three among with friends you know so but you know at one point he had nine he's like me yeah <laughs> my, I was my, normal, say. my normal number of cats is normally seven or eight but since I was living in LA and moved back to London, I only have four because yeah, I had to kind of rescue them all over again. I mean, I couldn't drag the existing cats across the ocean because my, my ex-husband loved them just as much. And I, I, I thought I can't put them through all that. I mean, it's a real ordeal taking them to America. Yeah. I can imagine. And, and, you know, the old girls died and uh, there were three left um, at that point. And, he, of course, has Lola still, who, whom he rescued, and Jimmy Chimbella. And Roger moved in with our friend. So, Okay. And somebody jumped a kitten on his doorstep, so he's got three at the moment. But um, It seems like it happens a lot in America. It happens a lot everywhere. I mean, people really? just dump animals. You know, people just are careless. They, they, they think they're disposable. You know, it doesn't suit their lifestyle. When they lose interest in caring for them, it just dumped them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, half the strays on the streets are once had homes, you know, the friendly ones. You, you could tell. Yeah. Those cats. It's just, heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Oh my um, but I'd love to touch on some of the, the activist work that you've done as well, because I know we spoke about earlier and um, your kind of mission and, and hope to get across the message about, you know, clean meat and, and, and veganism. But you helped shut down some breeder lab- laboratories. Um, among oh, yeah. Other things. yeah. So, yeah. Tell us oh, a bit yeah. about what that and, and what. Well, that was that was the height of my activism, because um I mean, when I was young in the 90s, um, I mean, I, I, I was just starting out as a journalist. I, I finished university and you know, that, that, was, that was my youth. And of course, the 90s were the big protest era. I mean, we didn't have social media. We didn't all have all this sort of stuff. Um, we actually went on protests. Yeah. Um, we had vigils. Um, there's a place called Hillgrove Cat Farms in Oxfordshire. And uh, this farmer and his wife had been breeding cats and kittens for 23 years. Wow. Um, on the se- sly, secretly. They had these sheds just full of cats and kittens. And they would mail them across the world to labs. I mean, they would just stick them in the post oh, and mail them. Oh, I mean, it's horrendous. Um, and there was a nurse who lived there. She found out what, what they were doing. And she started uh, Shack. It was called, well, she, she started um, Hillgrove Cat Farms and then it evolved into Shack, Stop, Stop Huntington Life Sciences. That was a really big lab who did, uh, I mean, they were the biggest lab in Europe. Um, okay. And they did a lot of the horrendous um, cat experiments. They would sew batteries into their heads. They would, oh. they would simulate diseases that cats don't have, you know. Um, and, you know, basically... Animal research has actually held back a lot of medical advancements. Like cornea transplants were delayed by 90 years because they were tested on animals. Most of the medical advances that we have come from post-mortem studies on humans, mm-hmm. um, not from animals. The reason um, labs use animals is so they can get drugs on the market faster and to protect themselves from legal liability. Like if you, if you use something, uh, say, for instance, if you use an eye medicine and you go blind from it, you can't sue the drug companies because they could say, well, it's, it's unreliable because it was tested on animals. So they basically, the reason they test on animals, not to improve medicine or science, uh, it's literally to get drugs on the market quicker and, uh, and to protect themselves from legal liability. That's it. That is the only reason. Um, 
Yeah. So most, most, like I said, most the greatest medical advancements have come from postmortem studies. I mean, they literally simulate. In fact, they're pet food companies like IAMS. Nobody should ever buy IAMS. IAMS basically torture cats and dogs and kittens. Um, they starve them. They remove kidneys. All these things uh, to basically they test cat food on them. Um, cool. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, never buy IAMS. So they just torture cats and dogs. So. And it's really cheap, horrible, nasty cat food um, yeah. and dog food. But yeah, they test and torture animals. But anyway, so Hillgrove Farm, um, they existed for 23 years until this nurse found out about what they were doing. And she started this campaign and we shut them down in two and a half years. Um, in the end, the the police, the police in... Um, in Oxfordshire, they just, they, they had a sort of a limited budget. They couldn't protect this one guy's business. I mean, they spent $5 million in those two and a half years. Um, and he said he was retiring, but basically um, the police said, we can't protect you anymore um, from the activists because every month, five to 10,000 people would descend on this small town in Oxfordshire and protest about Hillgrove. Hey. I mean, there was one weekend, um, I think it, it's, it was towards the, the very last year in 1999 where it just got violent. Um, in fact, there were police helicopters and everything. We were activists started ripping the sheds apart to get the cats out. And uh, it became, and, and I think one of the things that influenced him uh, to shut it down, um, activists stowed the guys, they basically kidnapped the, the farmer's wife. This oh, was a woman wow. in her sixties. <laughs> they stripped her naked and naked and tied her oh. to a pole. My and obviously between the police pulling out uh, and that, um, that was the end of Hillgrove. And those last 800 cats, basically these cats never saw the sky or felt the grass or never saw the sun. They lived in these dark sheds oh. and they had such a high matricide rate. Um, 25% of the mother cats would kill their kittens. Oh. I mean, you know, predators are the most fiercest sort of parents. Yeah. Um and, you know, the fact that they were killing their kittens, they knew, you know, horrible things were, they just sense when something terrible is going to happen to them. Um, so but yeah, 25% matricide rate. Uh, so those last 800 cats and kittens, um, they all went to, to really great homes. They were homed in pairs and it was all over the papers and made international news when it was shut. And it, that was July, 1999. That was the happiest day of my life. I was just uh -huh. so ecstatic, you know. Um, but yes, that was a big one. And we shut places like Rigo Rabbits, where they bred rabbits for cosmetic tests. Yeah. <laughs> um, you should never buy makeup unless it's vegan or not yeah. animals. Never. Um, they do horrendous tests again. And then another place we shut down was called Shamrock Monkey Farm. Um, yeah, they take monkeys from Africa. They would be flown on Air France, another airline should, should boycott, should never fly on Air France because they still take animals in, out of the wild. Uh, right now, actually, I'm doing a story on Ethiopian Airlines. Um, they are actually flying um, animals to labs. They are flying animals um, to the pet trade in the Middle East. Right now, the hot pet to have in the Middle East is a cheetah. And cheetahs are really threatened. So they take these animals out of the wild and they fly them. So nobody should ever fly Ethiopian Airlines. <laughs> I mean, you really have to sort of research, you know, before you buy anything. Um, because if you're supporting these companies, you're complicit. You're supporting this torture. So if you yeah. buy makeup or 
if you fly in airlines that uh, fly animals to labs, you know, you're, you're actually supporting this. So what's the uh, best way to find out? Is it just to like research the companies? It's so easy these days. You just Google it, you know? Yeah. Um, Literally. Do you think that stuff will come up? Do you think that oh, it, it always comes up? You really? know, um, believe me. Um, if there's any sort of animal torture, Peta has found it and uh, started a campaign against it. You know, so um, not just Peta. You know, you've got the other big sort of charity like uh, Mercy yeah. for Animals. I mean, there's just so many of them now. Uh, in fact, um, the World Protection of Animals. Uh, they're and EFAL, uh, they're, they're doing this sort of Ethiopian Airlines story, which I'm going to be writing about in a couple of days. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a vet, but um, I, I, I just, I'm too emotional. I probably wanted with these yeah. vets suicide, you know, I just couldn't cope with cutting animals open or putting to sleep or, or just to see all the horrific things that people do to animals. So, I mean, vets have one of the highest suicide rates and, really? you know, I could, I could imagine you just sort yeah. of would burn out after a while. Um, True. But, you know, I, I just, I hated math and science. So um, I was never going to be a vet. So I, I, <laughs> I, the next best thing I write about sort of animals, um, I write about animal rights and the environment and uh, conservation. And yeah, I read a lot of horror stories, but. Yeah. Um, is, writing, early- is writing your way of coping? Because how do you deal with like witnessing? Yeah. Do you know that? In um in the mid two thousands, I used to write regularly for the Sunday People, um, and they had a they had an animal page, and like every week, I would write uh, about um, you know bulls in Spain, um, mm. bears. Uh, they used to have these bear parks in Japan where they would starve the bears, and they would be in the pit, and you would throw food down so they could fight each other and torture each other, mm. and. Uh, I'd write about uh, fur farms in Sweden. Um, you know, it was always it was always Spain or China or Korea. You know, mostly. Um, and I remember during the uh, tsunami, a lot of the sanctuaries in the UK were suffering because um, their donations were being diverted to um, the tsunami. Yeah. And I remember this particular couple, they had this sanctuary in Essex. They were in their 70s and they had about 400 animals. They had horses. They owed the vet thousands of dollars, thousands of pounds. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, I mean, I had this woman in her 70s crying to me over the phone. You know, um, we only have enough food for about a week. You know, we don't know what's going to happen to the animals. We owe the vets so much money. We had horses with cancer. Mm. Um, and so I, I read about it. Uh, and when the article went up, in print a week or two later they got seventy thousand pounds you know from yeah. that piece oh, so they did follow up they got more money and it absolutely saved them they had enough money for food for the next six months That's and so then the, and then we did a follow-up story they got even more money and uh you know i would write about um elephants being tortured in thailand they take them away from their mothers they they beat them they break their spirits so this is they do this so tourists can ride them mm. Um, you know, so when you ride elephants, you are breaking families, you are supporting elephants that were tortured to death, you know, um, I mean, they, they beat them. So they're submissive so that, yeah, tourists can ride them. So, I, you know, again, there was another charity that got tens and thousands of pounds from one article. And that to me was like thrilling. So I did that like for two years. I, I just I did so many awful stories. Yeah. But when these charities got a lot of money on the back of one article, it would just make me so happy. Um, but it was really 
painful writing about them. Um, I still remember interviewing this German journalist. Um, I mean, luckily, I didn't have to go undercover. There were people much braver than myself who would go undercover and get these stories and risk their lives. And <laughs> I interviewed this German journalist called Manfred Karaman, and um, he broke the story in the cat and dog fur trade. Um, so he went undercover in China, um, in Thailand, for 18 months, pretending to be a furrier. Okay. See these cats and dogs being stripped of their fur alive, screaming. And I said to him, you know, I was interviewing him on the phone, and, you know, I was trying to be professional. Um, well, you know, I had tears running down my face. Mm -hmm. My voice was going to break, so I didn't want to sort of, like, cry. <laughs> Yeah. I sort of hold back the tears, but I asked him, what does this do to you sort of emotionally? You know, he said, well, it's destroyed me. You know, I mean, I have, um, I have night sweats, I have nightmares, um, but you know, somebody has got to do it. Yeah. And he said, because of my work, um, just the last a few weeks, they shut down uh, five or six cat and dog slaughterhouse in Thailand. He said, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, they, they saved over 10,000 animals. And he said, for me, my emotional suffering is worth it, you know. So, yeah. you know, people like that who witnessed yeah. this just yeah. – so there was this company called Alaska Brokerage um, in Europe. They, they, they were in Highgate, um, so Alaska Brokerage. I think they're still going. Um, it's, it sounds familiar, to be honest. Yeah, uh, yeah. look it up. Um, so he, he broke that story, um, uh, and, and there was there was a – program a documentary program called Newsnight in the 90s and early 2000s I don't think it's still going I know but, I know what you're talking yeah, about Newsnight, yeah and um so he would uh basically um sell cat and dog fur in Europe and basically if uh you don't in the UK uh, I don't think this has changed you could buy fur um if it's under 500 pounds you don't have to label it as real fur Okay. So, so people would, and sometimes they would spray paint it. They would use a uh, real fur um, and cat and dog fur was cheap. They would use it on oh. lapels. Um, they would use it on lapels and cuffs. Uh, you know, a lot of fashion designers using it. People like Calvin Klein and others. Um, oh my gosh. Um, Dolce Gabbana. So uh, they would, you know, if you bought a jacket with uh, lapels with fur on it or on, um, or, fur line jackets you know quite often it would be cat and dog fur i mean the really terrible irony is some of the cat and dog toys that feel really lovely and feel like real fur yeah um well, would sometimes be made out of cat and dog fur either rabbits or cat and dog fur because it's cheap um and you don't have to label it as real fur um so yeah a lot of people were buying um real fur unknowingly because you, you don't have to label it I, I don't know if that's changed in the EU, but I know in, in the UK, under a certain amount of money, um, it doesn't have to be labelled as real fur, which is horrendous. I hope that's changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hope so, but I, I doubt it. It's, we oh, seem to be regressing in this country in every way, you know, possible. I don't um, never I mean, You know, here you can... Um, Cats, dogs are considered property in the UK. So if you run over a dog, you have to stop. If you run over a cat, it's considered wildlife. So you don't have to stop. You kill someone's cat and you don't have to stop. You know, you could just leave it in the road as roadkill. Um, 
I mean, you know, there there have been various campaigns to change the legislation. Yeah. It wasn't changed, and you know, we call ourselves a uh, country of animal lovers. Well, we're not. You know, right. I mean, if you look at uh, that poor apaca uh, Geronimo, mm. just you know, one sad little animal. I mean, they wasted taxpayers' money. Yeah, killing one sad little animal. I mean, that was just. Yeah. That was so heartbreaking. I was so angry and sad about that, you know. Um, you know, in the middle of p- pandemic, they're, yeah, exactly. they're wasting all these resources and money killing that one sad little animal. I was confused. I was confused. I just didn't understand why they were going to such great efforts when there's so many other things that they should be focusing on. I just don't understand. Um, believe me, if that was my apaka, I would be a fugitive. I would just go on the run, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. You know, I can relate. Yeah, no way. I mean, I I would just hide him. I would, yeah, I would take him somewhere, and I would go to prison. I don't care. Um, In fact, when I was an activist um, in the nineties, when I was when I was a heavy activist, (laughs) uh, I remember a lot of people got arrested. All they did was campaign. Really, Um, there's there's a really brilliant movie, um, a documentary called Animal People. I think it's on Netflix and it tells you all about um, Stop Huntington Life Sciences, Shaq. And a lot of these people just went to prison uh, for the campaign literature and for campaigning and just for being tenacious and uh, basically helping to destroy this uh, lab's business. Yeah. Um, And uh, I remember this one, one activist, he went to, he went to prison for four years for breaking in, to Huntington Life Science and and for rescuing four beagles, four years. Uh, four years. Wow. Yeah, um, they were handing out. You know, you could be a rapist, a pedophile, a murderer, and you you don't get half the sentences yeah. of an animal activist. You know, it's just ridiculous. Nothing. I just can't comprehend. Well, there was an activist called Barry Horn um, in the nineties, and he he went in a he basically he went into starvation protest kind of like um bobby sands you know the ira mm. prisoner yeah um he 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 was given 18 years for blowing up um oh god i forget what it was but i mean no no animals or people were hurt but he, yeah. he oh, up, okay. uh, and 18 years 18 years i think he blew up a slaughterhouse or something um in fact this is a really funny story um when i was looking for blurbs for my book i approached somebody called carolyn paul she wrote a few um cat books she wrote a book called lost cat which is really great uh, about her cat and um and she sent me an email in the middle of the night while she was reading my book and she said you know that uh that horse slaughterhouse that you mentioned in the book in redmond oregon because michael um Michael and Tabor, the 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 guy in my book, Michael and the cat, they get stuck in the winter in Redmond, Oregon. They they can't get a ride for about four hours, and it's freezing. And the only thing that's uh, Redmond's famous for is a horse slaughterhouse. They used to slaughter five hundred horses a week mm-hmm. uh, for for horse meat uh, for the French and the Japanese to eat. You know, um, and it was the only uh, legal sort of horse slaughterhouse in America. Usually, they send horses to um, Canada where they still slaughter them in Mexico. And so there was this activist called Jonathan Paul. Um, she said, you know, my brother got four and a half years for that, uh, 
for that slaughterhouse, he burnt that slaughterhouse down. You know, it's just, I mean, and, and, and only like a week before she read my book, I saw a documentary called When a Tree Falls about the Earth Liberation Front in America. Yeah. They were burning slaughterhouses and any, any sort of like um, animal exploitation industry that tortures yeah. animals. So they burnt this house, down, uh, they burnt this slaughterhouse down in Oregon. And yeah, he got four and a half years for that. Um, so he's quite a famous animal rights activist called Jonathan Paul. And Carolyn has got, Carolyn's a writer. She used to be a firefighter. Her sister um, was Alexandra Paul. She's an actress. She was in Baywatch, um, that, uh, that series in the 90s with Pamela yeah. Anderson. Yeah. And she, her sister actually turned um, Pamela Anderson to veganism. So wow. <laughs> from that family, cool. they were quite amazing family. But yeah, so I thought Jonathan Paul, like he's one of my heroes, you know, he just has done all this amazing work, burning places down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I absolutely support, you know, destroying places that torture animals. So. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that they get so much gel time and it's just, I, I, but, but Barry Horn got 18 years. I mean, he starved himself to death, you know, um, 18 years, you know. Um, not even murderers. Some murderers don't even get that. It's yeah, they get parole. And yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, Jack Straw, the home secretary in the 90s, introduced these really, really, really heavy sort of uh, prison sentences for animal rights activists because um, there are more laws protecting property in this country than humans or animals or anything. Um, so, yeah, you can get more for burning a building down than you can for probably murdering a person. So um, they, they do this to protect industries. They do this to protect the meat and dairy industry. Um, of course. Um, the, the meat industry, the meat and dairy industry is a dying industry. Um, it, it, it relies on subsidies. It's so heavily subsidized. Yeah. Um, in the fishing industry too. Um, oh, in fact, yeah. fishing trawlers, uh, these Chinese and uh, EU fishing trawlers, they're strip mining the, the West African coast, one of the most pristine oceans in the world. I mean, they, in fact, Captain Paul Watson said that they actually five million fish a minute are being taken out of the oceans. You know, when the oceans die, we all die. So, mm. um, but the reason these massive trawlers that take one of these trawlers will take, uh, a ton of fish in a week. Can you imagine a ton? Mm. Um, and the reason they can afford to do that, these, um, distance fishing trawlers is because they're subsidized by the government. The Chinese government subsidizes the fishing industry and the meat industry. So, and I really resent, you know, propping up these industries, being forced to do it with our tax money. So, yeah, I know yeah. after watching Sea Spiracy on Netflix as well, that was a real eye opener. Yeah, well, that's that's what I wrote about. Um, oh, okay. Uh, I wrote about Netflix, uh, and basically they're strip mining um, West Africa because it is one of the most pristine places in the world, you know, and the Chinese and the you you know yeah basically. but yeah so <laughs> it's just so depressing like, it really is wow it's very heavy um and it's just is is hard to wrap my head around but I think it's so important to have these conversations and I think it's so important to just, bring just awareness to aware just it's, yeah it's important to make people aware because yeah. When you support these things, when you buy meat, when you buy fish, when you support uh, hideous companies like IAMS and 
mm. Air France and Ethiopia Airlines, you are supporting this just incredible, unbelievable cruelty. So mm. really have to kind of research uh, things and, you know, never buy makeup unless it says not tested on animals or oh, yeah. and, and fake companies like Body Shop. I mean, Body Shop, they, they do test on animals. It's just a big lie. Um, okay. Basically, uh, they get around these loopholes where the ingredients are testing animals. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, right. okay. unless it's, unless it's far, but, yeah, yeah, the ingredient. I mean, there's so many really amazing big, vegan beauty companies that mm-hmm. you don't have to support Estee Lauder and all these awful things. Even Mac. Mac is another fake, you know, not testing on animals. Yes, they test on animals. Um, and, in fact, what they do to get around it is they test in China and it just they won't test in Europe or the EU. Oh, that they'll test. Yeah, they're loopholes. They get around, and they then they'll still say they're not just on animals, which is just a big fraud. Yeah, um, I can imagine. Um, but let's move on to something a light, a little bit more kind of light-hearted now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and talk a bit about um, some of the pets in your life, um, specifically cats that have been with you so far. Well, um, oh, I would tell you. You could, I, I know, you could speak about all of the cats. Maybe about the four cats that you have now. Well, I, I'll tell you about the two main coons that I had, Honey and Tallulah. I mean, uh, Honey, I named her Wild Honey Pie after the Beatles song. Oh. And, and I, I got them after my cat Pixie was a Maine Coon. Um, this elderly neighbor found her in the park when she was feeding foxes thinking she was a squirrel. She was just under this sort of leafless tree uh, during a bonfire on her own. And she thought, gosh, it must be an injured squirrel. And she was this little Maine Coon kitten. And uh, and at that point I had seven cats um, and my boyfriend and I said, we'll foster her. And we fell in love with her immediately. I mean, I carried her down the road. She was such a character, Pixie. But um, she never grew and she had feline leukemia. And yeah, she, she lived to two and a half, you know, she just died. I mean, there was nobody in the world who could save her. And I was just devastated. Um, and then my friend Hazel um, found these Maine Coons that needed to be rescued like that weekend. Okay. And I was destined to have them. So I picked out their names the night before. <laughs> yeah. um, so I asked the woman to rescue them. I want their pedigrees because I didn't want the guy to change his mind. He was basically an alcoholic. He would just go on benders and leave them and starve in the flat and lived in a filthy flat. And, mm. and he, you know, he got them, their giant cats to outdo the neighbors and he just got bored with them and couldn't be bothered. So, um, and so I thought I'm going to name them honey and Tallulah. And then when I looked at their um, certificates, their pedigrees, mm-hmm. Tallulah had a grandmother called Tallulah blue. Oh, wow. <laughs> and honey had a grandmother called wild honey. I mean, it was a bit. Oh, that I is was, strange. I was meant to have those cats. Yeah. But within, so I rescued him in February um, when Pixie died. I came back from Rome and um, honey had a lump on her forehead. The vet wasted a week giving me antibiotics saying that, um, oh, it's, it's, um, it's an abscess. And I thought, no, it's not. It's a tumor. I can, I can feel, I know the difference, you know? So he wanted to up the antibiotics. It was just getting bigger. And I just thought it's clearly a tumor. So I switched to vets. She came with therapy for 10 months um, I mean, she would have, she had a really aggressive lymphoma. She would have died before she reached her fifth birthday. They were four, 
and four and a half years old when I rescued them. They came from two different breeders until it was five months younger than honey. Mm. And um, she, so I, t- I took, they operated, took the tumor out and then she had chemotherapy for 10 months and I had her for 10 years. She died when she was like 14. Okay. But I used to take her to the vet in a little Triumph convertible. And and because um, my, my flatmate at the time had this little convertible. The vet was only like a few streets away, but she liked riding in the convertible. <laughs> <laughs> she was such a funny cat. Yeah. And there was a, a, a red, a double-decker bus coming from the opposite direction. And we had the roof down. And she yeah. ducked. She thought this bus was going to crush us. It was just so good. I mean, she was such a character. She wanted to be walked up and down the street and um, waited for me at the window. She was so dog-like, you know. She had the best (laughs) traits of a cat and dog. And um, and Tallulah, Tallulah liked to be sung to. And she loved loved 60s uh, music, especially the 60s divas and the girl group. She loved this Irma Thomas song. Okay. Um, do you know what love is? So I'd sing that to her every night and, and her pupils would go really large. And, really? You know, she, and she loved S words. Like I'd say, and I'd read the menu to her. And when she was in the garden and I couldn't see her, I'd call for her. I would say slut, slag, flapper. <laughs> and she'd run, you know, she'd run. She'd be so excited, you know, oh, I mean, she loved S words. <laughs> yeah, they, they were so quirky. And so I'd read the menu. I'd read, I'd read all the S words, you know, shrimp. <laughs> swordfish you know she would just go crazy <laughs> she's such a funny cat but Maine Coons if you want a cat with a lot of character they're hilarious and then of course I had a cat called Bobby um who was murdered um I mean she was six years old she was a ginger girl ginger tabby girl with uh, goat eyes she was stunning and we when we lived in Hackney our garden backed onto this little cemetery it looked like Somerset from the back of our house and mm-hmm. And nobody used it except the neighborhood cats where the old men used to go and read the newspapers on the bench there. And um, these Turkish drug addicts used to go there, these teenage thugs. Mm. Um, and they set their pit bull on Bobby. And, mm-hmm. you know, we found her headless. And it just mm-hmm. devastated me. I mean, I wrote about this for The Guardian. I mean, I was just so, I mean, I almost got run over by a bus. I almost got hit by a car twice. I just wasn't paying attention. I walked around London, you know, I go to work and, you know, I'd I'd start crying on the bus. You know, That's this traumatizing. I it just, I mean, I should have really had. If there was any one time in my life I should have had therapy, it would have yeah. been that. Yeah. I mean, I used to think of therapy. You know, I thought it was just hippie bollocks. You know, yeah. but I just, I was, you know, I, I would just break down in public sometimes. I would just cry. Um, it's 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 one thing to be heartbroken, but to have sort of anger with it. I was so yeah. angry. It, just and you know, and the fact that they got away with it, um, you know, we moved all across town. We moved to South London, um, but yeah, I mean, that was like what twelve years ago, and still, yeah, of course, you know, it's um, yeah. I mean, that would like that will haunt me for the rest of my life, you know, because I used to write these horror stories. I still write these horror stories, and you never think it's going to happen to you. You mm-hmm. and I, I'd live in houses. Um, I always chose houses where terrace houses where they couldn't get out in the streets because I was wor- worried about cars, but, you know, I never thought I had to protect them for psychopaths, you know? So, exactly. um, but yeah, that was like the worst day of my life. Um, you know, I just, I would never ever give it over that for as long as I live, you know, just to find your cat, your six year old cat headless, you know, oh, and what she must've gone through. Um, my I just, for you. It's, it's I, I just, I think, you know, I think they should, 
I know in um, California, they give really severe prison sentences for animal cruelties. Um, there was this incident uh, about 15, 16 years ago. Um, it was a road rage incident. And this guy got out of his car, took this woman's elderly dog, just a little lap dog, threw it in the middle of the out- oncoming traffic oh. and, uh, and, you know, killed it um, and had to put out a huge reward for it. Um, and I think that was one of the one of the sort of uh, things that ushered in sort of stronger legislation. I mean, you can get like um, 10, 15 years, you know, for sort of animal cruelty and, you know, it's just it's just not taken seriously in this country. It's really not. Um, and those guys who killed my cat, um, so, so this couple who rescued a dog from them said, um, I wouldn't even let them know that you know, because, um, you know, one of them was tried for manslaughter. They're really dangerous. Um, yeah. So what we did was we just looked to buy a flat in South London as far as we can go, you know, um, <laughs> to move away. And for those six months uh, before we moved out, we kept our cat shut in. We were just terrified to let them out, you know, so. But even uh, places like Thailand, we, we, um, I read about this. We went to this, we wanted to go to the elephant sanctuary. It's a really famous one. It's one of the best elephant sanctuaries in the world uh, called Elephant Nature Park. And that woman does incredible work. Um, mm-hmm. There are cats and dogs, there are water buffaloes, other animals, but, um, but there were no trains, um, there were no flights. Um, and so we th- I thought we have to find another sanctuary to go to because it was a president's birthday or something. It was around Christmas. It was impossible to go up there. Okay. So we ended up going to the Tiger Temple. Um, I don't know if you remember it, but it was shut down uh, about four or five years ago. Okay. Yeah. So they were drugging these tigers. Um, I remember when my husband and I got into a fight with them and these other Californians who were there um, because these tigers were active. They were pissing on trees. They were leading them, these monks on chains. They were active. And then they made us wait for half an hour. They took them down to this quarry and then they uh, they brought all the tourists down and the tigers were all chained to the ground and they were, they were, they were, they were heavily asleep. Like they were, uh, they would be on a, a vet's table um, yeah. and you could tell that they were drugged. Yes. And so tourists can uh, take pictures of them with the tigers on their laps, these sleeping tigers. And so we got into a fight with the monks and they said, oh, no, no, this is just their siesta. You know, they, they sleep at this time of the day. I said, but they were just active, you know, half an hour ago. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you couldn't do that to a house cat, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's 50 degrees, you know, you just can't do that. Anyway, um, and then we saw um, they were feeding meat uh, to the deer. Oh, it's just crazy. And that's, I mean, that's how mad cows started, you know, feeding mm-hmm. the remains of other animals to herbivores. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, lastly, I want to know, obviously it's a no brainer, but would you say that being a cat owner has contributed to your well-being? Of course, seeing all of these, you know, witnessing all of this, all of this cruelty and this, the, these horrific scenes coming back home to your cats, has that been, you know, a help for you has that has that contributed to your to your well, own well-being to kind of help you to get over these situations in a way um oh, the cats I mean I just you know I'm just surviving the pandemic I mean the cats are amazing uh one of the things I love about travel is coming back home to the cats yeah yeah I mean I, I really miss them and it was, as I said that's one of the reasons why I always look for hotels that have cats or dogs yeah. Makes me, makes me miss them less, but no, absolutely. Um, 
yeah, cats give us an enormous, I mean, any animal gives you an enormous sense of sort of like well-being. It really does. Yeah, I think that you, you've spoken about topics that really need to be exposed. And I feel like, yeah, a lot of people can learn a lot from, from this conversation. So thank you so much for bringing awareness to such, you know, it, it might sound horrific to some people, but I understand that sometimes people need to hear that side of it because we're just, you know, in the media, they give us the nice side, they give us the sugar-coated side, but sometimes you really need to hear the harsh realities of what's oh, going on. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, even, it's just making me, as I was telling you about Anne's charity in Morocco, yeah. a lot of these people who throw their cats and kittens in the trash, they don't even realize that neutering is an option, you know, I mean, or they can't afford it, you know, so... Um, it's just, it, it's mostly ignorance. Um, people yes. unknowingly support a lot of really terrible things. E- even the way that people used to travel to ride on elephants and ride on camels. And, um, you know, a, a lot of terrible things are done to those animals to make them rideable for tourists. So yeah. we, we had a huge spat in Kenya on the press trip. Um, there were three meat-eating journalist and there was myself and two young vegan journalists and and then the PR and um, they they one of the things in that itinerary was going on a camel ride and Harriet and Chris and I we just thought like no way we're not going to camel ride and then we saw um, the people who looked after them their mayhoots or whatever you call them um, mm. they they were hitting the camels on their legs so they could sort mm-hmm. of sit down so we can get on them. And we just started shouting. Um, we complained to the lodge owner. We complained to the, the, the travel PR. I mean, we just created such a, such a huge fuss, you know, uh, you shouldn't be sort of, uh, and, and, and there's another, uh, another trip that I went on in um, Texas. I went on a road trip in West Texas. And one of the things that the PR organized for us was, to have a donkey ride across the border of Texas to Mexico. And I just thought, no, we, we are not going on a donkey ride, you know, just take that right off, you know? <laughs> but um, yeah. So you just, it's a matter of just educating people yes. really. Um, but thank you so much again for, for talking to me. Um, I'm looking forward to airing this episode and for people to hear um, everything that you've said. But lastly, if the listeners want to find out more about you, um, read some of your articles, where can they find you? They on could, the- they, well, they could find me on uh, um, brickcollins.net. That's my website. Yes. And they can find my book anywhere. It's called Strays, A Lost Cat, A Homeless Man and Their Journey Across America. It's on Amazon, Waterstones, um, all the bookshops. Um, and Catfest, you can see on our social media. Uh, we're going to be back at Beckenham Place Mansion on July 16th next summer. So hopefully, um, hopefully the pandemic will ease even more by then. Yes. Yeah. The festival. But to be fellow for two summers has been pretty awful because um, oh, we we need we need help with um, cats. So if anybody wants to adopt Moroccan cats and kittens, we're still bringing them over from Morocco. Okay. And, and, and Anne's charity is called Erham. Uh, that's and Erham means um, to take pity um, in Arabic. Uh, and so that's Erham. It's E R H A M. And you could find more about Erham on um, the Catfest website, catfestlondon.com. And there's a charity page and you can see the video 
and all the work that Anne does, but we're still bringing cats over. We're bringing cats over in October. So if anybody wants to adopt um, a cat or a kitten, they could contact us um, through social media or contact me um, through my website or contact us through the catfestlondon.com website. Yes, um, I'm, I'm yeah, happy to post as well. I'll happily post yeah. uh, information about that and then link that to you as well. So please so, send over so some things and I'll, I'll definitely... Any, so anyone uh, who can offer homes to Moroccan cats and kittens, you know, we, we, we need help. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you and goodbye. Bye, bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We have some amazing guests on the show who share such invaluable advice, stories and inspiration. Can you do me a favour? If you like this podcast, please could you rate, review and subscribe. This will help us reach people who can benefit from listening. Another way you could help is if you could tell a friend who you think might enjoy this podcast too. See you next week. Goodbye.